Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. For now, the podcast is mostly ad-free, and I sure would like to keep it that way. You can help me out with that by becoming a supporting listener. If you find value in the podcast, there's a link in the show notes page that lets you contribute to my work, and that'll help keep the podcast going and light on advertising. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I've also set up a Cash App profile for the show, so one-time contributions can be sent there, and all of this information is also listed in that show notes page. If you contribute at least $4.99 per month, you're eligible for membership in the Ward Republic, which gets you one phone call with myself and the other Ward Republic members each month. And support monetary freedom today and head over to our new sponsor at www.defythegrid.com to purchase your gold backs. I have an affiliate link in the show notes page as well. And if you use it, I will get a 1% commission. So click on my link in the show notes page and help fuel monetary decentralization today. And don't forget to download the MeWe app and search for me so we can be friends and then I can add you into the show's private MeWe group so we can have sane and rational discourse around historic and current political topics. And without further ado, let's go ahead and get started with today's topic. Today we're going to continue our study of the problems with the corporate form. The focus is going to be on a book I've heard a few other people discuss, primarily Jeff Dost on the Human Action Podcast and Pete Canonez on his self-titled podcast. And the name of the book is The Managerial Revolution, and it was written by James Burnham and published in 1941, prior to U.S. entry into World War II. But after the worst of the Great Depression had passed, this book was extremely prescient in predicting what would become of the U.S. economy in the post-war years in some ways. And I specifically want to highlight the logical conclusion of divorcing ownership and control within the corporate form, which I felt Burnham did an outstanding job of describing. So... For this episode, it's not really going to be Jeffersonian focused because Burnham did not come from that school of thought, but he does point out some of the same problems that the Jeffersonians pointed out in terms of lack of true ownership would mean lack of real control. As always with this type of episode, we'll start with a short synopsis of who James Burnham was so we can have a little context as we begin the study of his work. James Burnham was born in Chicago on November 22, 1905. He was the son of English immigrant parents, and his father was eventually selected as an executive of the Burlington Railroad, now part of BNSF Railroad. He was raised Roman Catholic, but he turned to atheism during college and most of the rest of his life, although he did come back to the church not long before his death in 1987. In his late 20s, Burnham became heavily involved with the American Communist Movement, he was heavily influenced by Leon Trotsky, who had lost the power struggle to succeed Vladimir Lenin to Joseph Stalin. Burnham was instrumental in socialist and communist party struggles in the U.S., but repeatedly found himself on the losing side of these struggles. And this would eventually come to a head when his faction lost control of the Socialist Workers' Party, with Burnham resigning all party positions and affiliation, and then coming to denounce Marxism entirely by May of 1940. The following year would see Burnham write arguably his best-known book and our subject for today's episode. From here, he would also embed himself in the burgeoning New Right and exercise massive influence over the official conservative movement, even helping Bill Buckley found National Review magazine in 1955. And in essence, he could also be called the father of neoconservatism as he was a leading voice in calling for an extremely aggressive foreign policy throughout the Cold War. So he does have a few things that we need to be critical of, but that is not really the point for today's episode. 
The main point for today is to understand the major shift he saw happening in the world and see if he was proven right over time. So again, he's not coming at this from a Jeffersonian perspective. He's coming at this from a former commie perspective and a neocon perspective. But he's calling the facts basically as he sees it. He's not really endorsing it. He's just saying, this is what I observe happening, and this is probably how it's going to play out. So the first thing we need to understand before we really dive into the managerial revolution are the four groups of managers in Burnham's world. So in one group, you have operational management. So here you would have the operating executives, production managers, plant superintendents, so on and so forth. And this is actually the group that Burnham saw posing the biggest threat to the old capitalist system and whom he refers to as the managers throughout the rest of the book. They are the people responsible for organizing and actually making stuff happen within the company. And they design the process that builds the car, as an example. And so they are the technocratic element of the organization. And then in the second group, you have financial management. So here you would have financial officers or executives who facilitated company borrowing, negotiated labor contracts, process for raw materials, and steered the company to profits through price discovery. And then in the third group, you have the finance capitalists. So this would be the banksters and the big financiers. And Burnham saw this group actually wielded the power of control under the old capitalist model, as it was they who appointed the boards of the companies, controlled the majority of the stock, and determined whether companies lived or died through access to credit. Burnham also saw in this group a major ability to influence politics, again, through their influence and control of major portions of the economy. And then in the last group of so-called managers, you have the individual shareholders. So they're not really managers, but Burnham stated these were the formal air quotes owners of the company, but recognized that they had an entirely passive relationship to the company in reality, and that the only true thing stock ownership meant for them was the ability to receive dividends that non-stockholders would not be eligible to receive. And Burnham summed his view of this group up as follows. He said, quote, in most large corporations, which together are decisive in the economy, the bulk of the stockholders holding in their names the majority of the shares of stock have, as everyone knows, the passive relation to the company which has been referred to. With only the rarest of exceptions, they exercise no real control over the company except for the minor element of control involved in their preferential sharing as against non-stockholders in the profits, or rather the declared dividends of the company, end quote. And I want to focus on this for a second because now even dividends are getting harder to come by, especially in the world of big tech. Investors typically pile money into the companies mostly without the benefit of dividends and only in exchange for some promise of future profits, some vague promise of future growth and profits. So you can't even profit by per se holding the company. You can only profit if the stock appreciates and you then sell your shares. Apple and Microsoft both do pay small dividends, but Google, Facebook, Twitter, Amazon all have thus far denied their shareholders this benefit in exchange of a vague promise of an undefined future growth. And for context, as of the close of market today, Google was trading at $2,832.96 a share, while Amazon was at $3,304.14 a share. And this seems to tie in perfectly with the World Economic Forum's concept of a permanent rental economy and Klaus Schwab's proclamation that you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. You can rent the stock for a while, hope that it goes up, and then terminate your lease at some undefined future period if someone else is willing to take it. And that's really the only way you can actually profit on these stocks. You cannot profit by sitting there enjoying the fruits of ownership through dividends. 
you can only profit from it by renting it for a short period and then hoping that the merry-go-round continues and it goes up and you sell it. But what did Burnham think would happen? So he goes to great lengths detailing his understanding of what ownership means, which is essentially control over access to a given product and preferential treatment in said product's distribution. And he actually also details that if you separate ownership from control, then ownership doesn't actually mean anything. It's all about the control of it. That's where the true ownership lies. And the phenomenon that he observed was that the descendants of the capitalists of the 19th century were increasingly distancing themselves from the companies that their antecedents built and controlled. And this distancing meant that the supposed majority owners exercised less and less control and influence over the companies, really only benefiting from the passive relationship enjoyed by the other common individual stock owners. And they would only involve themselves in big questions of the companies. So again, he's talking about the big capitalist families who were left over from the 19th century essentially they're divesting themselves more and more of the business and kind of just enjoying the passive relationship. Now in Burnham's mind, the one saving grace that they still held at his point in time. So again, this was in 1941 was that they could remove bad managers from the organization. But after world war one, and even in Burnham's time, he saw that even this control was slipping away. So that, and what he kind of foresaw coming out of this is that that was making corporations and their managers independent of the capitalists who had founded them. And Burnham put that this way. He said, quote, similarly, the managers will exploit the rest of society as a corporate body. Their rights belong into them, not as individuals, but through the position of actual directing responsibility, which they occupy. They too, through the possession of privilege, power, and command of educational facilities will be able to control within limits the personnel of the managerial recruits and the ruling class of managers will thus achieve a certain continuity from generation to generation, end quote. So similar to what Dabney and the agrarians pointed out, Burnham is pointing out that you would eventually have unaccountable managers wielding power and control over vast, vast sums of other people's money and the corporate treasury. Now, how would this happen? And that's important. So obviously going on a permanent vacation does not entail relinquishing your ownership rights over a company or other property. So how would the managers come to be in such a powerful position as to be independent of the capitalist as a class? Well, it would start with a subversion of the capitalist institutions, which would be bent to the will of the masses. And Burnham saw this as sort of paradoxical because the mass of people would demand government interference in a market and he actually pointed out that would ultimately lead to the people's ruin or their suffering because when the government got involved, it would turn the tables against the masses. While the managerial class would initially resist this intrusion and side with the capitalist since they depended on the capitalist for their livelihoods. Over time, though, it would be revealed that this government interference would be immensely beneficial to the managers as they could collude with the state and cut out the capitalist middlemen entirely. So they would actually... Under Burnham's thesis, they would basically, at this point, assume almost ownership levels. Now, again, they don't own it. They are only there to manage it, and they can only profit from other people putting money in and what's already there. But if they could cut out the capitalist and therefore basically secure themselves a, a position, they could hold that position conceivably their entire lives, and then it would just pass on to somebody else. And again, the highlight here is that no one would ever be able to own anything you would simply have major corporations that lived indefinitely and a class of people spring up whose major motivating ambition would be to achieve dominion through the ranks of management. That, that is the key takeaway here. 
is that nobody would actually own anything. Even the capitalist of the previous era would not own anything. Everybody would be kind of subjugated to the will of this managerial class who would control the corporate treasuries of all these different corporations. And there would be other very nasty ways in which society would slowly be co-opted to this form of economy. Language would be weaponized to destroy the ideology or the world outlook of a capitalist system in favor of the new managerial ideologies. So instead of opportunity, the rallying cry of the politician would be jobs. The individual would be swept away in favor of the state. Private enterprise would be sacrificed for socialism or collectivism. And instead of freedom, the word of the day would be planning. No more talk about natural rights, only about duty. And how tellingly accurate is this considering the following statement from Joe Mussolini on December 21st, 2021? He said, quote, Get vaccinated now. It's free, it's convenient, and I promise you it saves lives. And I honest to God believe it is your patriotic duty, end quote. Or how about when Elizabeth Warren was on the campaign trail in 2020 and her response to everything was, I have a plan for that. And then, once the institutions and ideologies of the capitalists had been replaced, the final nail in the coffin would be a fusion of economy and state. And Burnham put it thus, he said, quote, Fusion of the economy with the state, expansion of the state functions to comprise also control of the economy, offers, whether or not the managers individually recognize it, the only available means, on the one hand, for making the economic structure workable again after its capitalist breakdown, on the other, for putting the managers in the position of the ruling class, end quote. And here I want y'all to recall from episode 60 when I talked about Sally Omarova and her proposal to create a national investment authority that would literally strive to control asset prices through open market operations. Never forget, that was Joe Mussolini's first pick for comptroller of the currency. So if you have that kind of control of the assets, yes, you definitely get a strong say because you can vote on these board meetings about who actually holds the reins of corporate power. You can vote on the board members. And with the government having the benefit of the printing press behind it, all they would need is time. And over time, they would come to be the dominant stakeholder or stockholder in whatever pet companies they wanted to go after. Again, you don't have to have a 51% stake to be able to control the outcome of a vote. You can do that with a plurality. In many cases, you can do that with maybe about a 10 to 15% stake in the company. So it's very scary because, again, that was Joe Mussolini's first pick for that. These are the types of people who were trying to get in power. And Burnham also pointed out how this would necessarily require the rise of a major bureaucratic state parallel to the private managers and dominated by the same types of technocratic people who would be the new rulers of the, air quotes, private economy. And again, think about the application of this to the modern corporate workplace. They employ armies of people for the sole purpose of fulfilling the government's and their agendas. These take the form of HR departments, compliance departments, legal, etc. But who was the first mover here? Was it the government or was it the corporate lobbyist in D.C. demanding this type of environment to protect themselves from smaller and potentially more innovative competitors, thereby entrenching the managerial class even more? And to go along with the rise of the bureaucratic state, Burnham also foresaw a rise in outright government industries and, again, a professional and permanent class of managers there. OSHA and Fauci would fit this bill perfectly. How many things has Fauci absolutely bungled throughout this pandemic, but somehow he just keeps holding his position of power? And how about the Supreme Court? In the sense that Burnham is using the term, they have essentially become a permanent managerial class that manages interpretation of the law. 
No fear of reprisal, no impeachment, in a nutshell, no way to get rid of them as a class. And the final form of this would be such a complete fusion that it would be almost impossible to tell where the state ends and private enterprise begins. As Burnham says, quote, In managerial society, however, politics and economics are directly interfused. The state does not recognize its capitalist limits. The economic arena is also the arena of the state. Consequently, there is no sharp separation between political officials and, air quotes, captain of industry. The captain of industry is, by virtue of his function, at the same time, a state official, end quote. And so Burnham does go to some great lengths. So he actually gives a bit of a history lesson here. He talks about how you went from feudalism to capitalism and now what he saw the emerging managerialism. But he basically talks about how in the capitalist model, because property rights were widely dispersed throughout the actual populace, so you actually had people and real private property, it was very difficult for the government to get involved with business to this extent just because it was so decentralized. They couldn't really go in there and take certain sectors of the economy over. But I do want to call attention to this. So right now there's a faction of libertarians out there, perhaps unknowingly cheerleading something like this. They want municipalities for sure and potentially other levels of government to start using what are essentially sovereign wealth funds to start purchasing stocks, bonds, and other, air quotes, private securities. They want to do this to allow municipal areas to cut or abolish taxes since that government would be receiving dividends, interest, etc. But we have to stop for two seconds and just ask the obvious question, what does that actually mean? And that means a direct, just as Burnham is calling it, a direct fusion of government and finance, a direct fusion of government and economy, because the real implication is the complete merger of economy and state under this proposed idea. And if you think I'm exaggerating that, you got these big public pension funds, California's in particular, so CalPERS, they're already starting to threaten some of the companies that they invest with to either increase diversity on the board, whatever diversity means, or CalPERS is going to start pulling funds from them. So don't think that this is a is just a made-up fiction or a made-up fear on my part. We already see this with the pension funds, and this would be that on steroids. And then just some last interesting tidbits from this book. When looking at Italy, Germany, and Russia, Burnham thought that a managerial economy would inevitably lead to the demise of a parliamentary system and the rise of one-man governments or dictatorships. And this would primarily be accomplished through governmental leveraging of newer technologies, such as rapid and mass communication, transportation, etc., and let's stop to appreciate that. The modern big tech companies are all but official arms of the state. The general government and several states are going all in on government-owned mass public transit. And virtually all of the mainstream media outlets are mere propaganda factories for the regime. So interestingly enough, Burnham also took note of the hypocrisy within the U.S. at the time. So again, this was published in 1941 when he stated, quote, It is legitimate to believe that there is often an element of hypocrisy or illusion in these feelings. Frequently in the United States, it is not totalitarianism, but Russian or German in general foreign totalitarianism that is being objected to. A 100% American totalitarianism would not be objectionable, end quote. And to drive that point home, I do just want to highlight it was that generation who blessed, and I say that very sarcastically, who blessed us with the CIA, the NSA, the DOD, the National Security Council, and so many other alphabet agencies of the general government. 
And he also thought totalitarian regimes would ultimately be self-destructive and that the eventual political system that would emerge for the managerial economy would be a facade of democracy where only a few got to vote and only on matters of no importance. In Burnham's opinion, this would give dissidents and political minorities a way to blow off steam without threatening the actual power structure of the managerial class. And he wasn't optimistic about this emergence, stating, quote, the democracy of managerial society will be some while being born, and its birth pangs will include drastic convulsions, end quote. And then the last major thing I wanted to talk about for today was Burnham's prediction that the world would soon be coalesced into three ruling super governments comprised of the former United States ruling over Canada, Mexico, and most of South America, Germany ruling Europe and Western Russia, and Japan ruling most of Asia. And this prediction, thankfully, did not come to pass. So while the U.S. did emerge from World War II as a true superpower, the centralization efforts of Germany and Russia failed, and Japan's defeat basically ended their imperial ambitions. Though I will concede that China seems to be filling that role in modern times. But more so, what I'm getting at is that decentralization had a resurgence in the immediate aftermath of World War II, and Burnham's consolidated world did not come to fruition on that front, thankfully as dozens of new sovereign countries emerged from 1945 to 1960. And so as we move into the wrap-up phase, I want everyone to think long and hard on what the separation of ownership and control can ultimately lead to if it's left unchecked. We are living in Burnham's world economically, where companies are mostly operating for the gratification of the state, and the shareholders are mere dividend recipients with no voice on the vast majority of corporate decisions. Aside from that, a new generation of social justice warrior managers have emerged from the college ranks and have an independent agenda that they are forcing through the corporation using the boundless resources of the corporate treasury and other people's money. Woke corporatism is in its infancy, and the prevailing mindset of too big to fail gives it significantly more power to pursue its goals. My thoughts are that it is high time to restrict the corporate form and return most businesses and industries to true capitalist ownership models like sole proprietorships or partnerships. And thank you all again for tuning in. Please remember, if you find value in the podcast, to consider becoming a supporting listener today. And don't forget to help fuel the Jeffersonian revolution by using the link in the show notes page to purchase your gold backs. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you so much again for tuning in, and I'll talk to you all next time.